Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Still Watching, a weekly television podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Chris Murphy. We've got a bonus episode for you as we digest the end of the HBO series Succession. The dramatic final episode saw the Roys face off and Kendall lose the throne. One person who helped craft this epic finale was director and executive producer Mark Mylod. And I got a chance to speak to Mark about how the finale came together. Here's our conversation. Post-Succession World, how does it feel? Um, I could do the pat answer, but the truth is, Chris, I feel... Um a little unstable, if I'm honest. Um, every time I think that I'm kind of free and clear from the gravitational pull of the show, I'll suddenly get hijacked and feel very emotional, um, which is, um, yeah, a strange thing. I've never had that before. I've, I've stayed with shows for a few seasons in the past, and uh, and despite the lovely relationships, I've always been okay moving on. But with Succession, I'm finding it very hard, even though it's a few months since we finished shooting there. I can I can imagine just because it's such a a seismic show. And I do before we talk about like the bitter end of it, I want to go back to sort of the beginning of the end and what you thought when you learned how the show was going to end, how the series was going to end when you got that final script. How did you react to the final script? Um with wonder and awe as <laughs> I do a lot with Jesse Armstrong's writing. I skim through it. We, you know, the, the actual final scripts come in very late, and then there's a number of drafts that come in. So, so there's not like bam, there's your script and go. It's it's a much mm. more kind of organic process than that. It's one of the lovely, unique ways in which we work. So I knew the shape of the show long before I got the script. You know, hence that 
enables us to go find locations, um, mm-hmm. obviously for the show. So we're setting that up. In this case, the location scout was, you know, fairly brief in that, you know, so much of the show took place at Waystar. Obviously, we had to get over and scout Barbados. Mm-hmm. Um, and to find those um, uh, th- those areas for those last vignettes, particularly with Jeremy finding the right spot for that, where I could get the right emotional kick internally, was tricky, but nothing untoward. But the real kicker was the table read, the last table read. We tended to do table reads on Zoom just because of COVID precautions as much as anything. But we did the last one in person. And just to have that final gathering of the full cast and, and to be sat next to Jesse and my other producer colleagues and friends in that room hearing this script aloud and uh, and the tragedy of it was absolutely heartbreaking it really was and uh, the atmosphere in the room was thick and I, I've never seen Jesse so you know emotional just trying to hold it together it was a, a really lovely but also very emotional time I love that you just said the tragedy of it, uh, just because it really does end in tragedy but before mm. we get to sort of the tragic end for Kendall, we have this like emotional high point, this sort of lovely um, sort of sleepover slumber party moment in <laughs> Barbados. I'm not drinking that. Male fit for the game. Mm, no, no, Drink up. This is going to be all right, right? Like, we're all right. Yeah? Just fucking drink it. Oh my God. Oh. Kings don't wear silly hats. Kings wear crowns. I can't drink anymore. Well, then don't wear your crown, sir. Oh, no. It's hard to me about filming that, and it was so it was so emotionally resonant and so fun that I thought maybe they were going to make it out. Maybe it was going to work <laughs> out for the Roy kids. Yeah, there's the essential cruelty of that uh, of the whole structure of the script, and and I suppose that the whole structure of the series is is the cruelty of hope, isn't it? Mm. Um, that. Um, you know, when I'm reading it, even though I know where it's going, I'm still thinking, oh, actually, they could be happy. There is a life where they can escape the gravitational pull of Waystar and actually live free and independent lives and have healthy relationships. <laughs> and of course, all of which is totally futile. But yeah, it's a cruelty of hope. Um, but um, yeah, we deliber- for practical reasons, we had to shoot Barbados last. Uh, and that just fed in with a lovely kismet. And uh, we made sure that we structured the filming schedule in Barbados, so the very last scene that we would shoot would be the scene in the kitchen, the meal fit for a king, um, that which is, I think, probably without doubt, the closest we've ever seen the three siblings and, and the most fun they've ever had together, um, mm-hmm. albeit loaded with so many layers, of course. So there was something gorgeous um about being able to shoot that last and uh and, uh, overusing the word emotional um uh, but uh, but it was emotional and, and it but but most of all it was great fun it was just really great fun to just learn to that after all having already shot at that stage everything in the boardroom the whole denouement of the uh, of the series there was something so cathartic about having that time together and of course this beautiful island and so we were able to just really kick aside or all the kind of fraught sense of of ending our working relationships together and to just enjoy the moment. I think I, I saw a video of uh, Sarah Snook shaving Jeremy Strong's head immediately after. <laughs> I'm like, can you talk to me about that? Because we worried about you can't get any pickups after that, right? In case you need, in case you need yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, there, there was. Uh, I mean, you know, we literally had to fly back the next day. We were on such a tight turnaround to, to edit and deliver the show by that stage that you know the chances of um, of pickups was 
negligible anyway. Yeah, I think as I called cut for the final time in a series wrap, um, things descended (laughs) into chaos quite quickly. (laughs) Kieran came up to me and um, cracked a number of eggs onto my head. Um, And uh, I think a full food fight ensued, um, if I remember rightly, followed quickly by, yeah, Sarah and Kieran taking in terms shaving Jeremy's head. And uh, very quickly we were either covered in hair or eggs or both. And then there was a kind of almost crew wide jump into the ocean to clean off all the crap, um, <laughs> which was, um, in fact, we all ended up on that little float that, that Jeremy's yeah. character was on when he's anointed with the crown. And I think we sank it because there were so many of us on it. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, it was, <laughs> it was really fun. That is so, that is so fun. And I got to know in that scene in particular, that concoction, what was Jeremy drinking? Did he actually drink that? Like the, the, the meal of freaking, what was in there? Cause it looked absolutely gnarly. Yeah. We're talking about Jeremy Strong here. So do you, what do you think? Of course he drank it. Um, he Ew. drank it. He was literally, we had to do, we did about eight takes maybe uh, just trying different levels of, um, Oh, oh, oh yeah just play you know as we do we explore um mm. and so the poor guy and i kept telling him just just don't drink it don't drink it don't drink it but he can't when he's in the moment he just drinks it and he was literally throwing up he was retching i'd call cut and he would lean over and throw up into the sink um the poor guy was suffering it was disgusting it really was because we played you know it was all real ingredients it was all whatever went in he would drink hot sauce and all Mm, wow. And I know that you're, you know, stylistically, you don't really rehearse and you sort of like let the actors figure mm. it out um, in the moment. So how did that work in terms of, I guess, that concoction? And so it was different every time and it was just like... It was different. There were, yeah, the, the, we didn't rehearse it, but there were, but I have to give the actors the tools to succeed, you know. So, um, so they had to know you know, because this is a house that even though they've not been there for a while, they're very familiar with and from their childhood also. So there were certain things they would know. So the character, I had to tell the actors, okay, the character would know that the freezer is there, the fridge is there, the the pantry is there. So they had to know the kind of basics of where to find stuff as, the, as, as indeed the siblings would. But beyond that, whatever staging that I have in my head I try to arrange it and uh, and we have an understanding that I'll, I need them to be in a certain place, but I won't tell them to go there. I'll just make it the only place that the character really could go. If there's a, if there's a truth to it, the, the, I know those actors and I trust those actors will find their way there. And because we've worked so closely for so many years now, you know, there's a symbiotic relationship there and uh, and it just works. I don't need to say, please go and stand in position A. I do want to take sort of like a macro look at the, the final episode just because it is 90 minutes. That's like a basically a movie. You basically filmed sort of like Succession, the series finale movie. Um, when you have sort of such a mammoth task and you're used to working in, I guess, 60-minute chunks and now you add a whole extra half hour, how does that change sort of the pacing and your approach to the episode? Did it change anything? Did you think sort of in a more macro way about the finale or did you just do the same old that you've been doing? Um, more, more the latter. That's quite a, you know, boring answer, isn't it? Um, <laughs> okay. first of all, the, the first cut was two hours or over two hours, Whoa. getting it down to it, getting it down to 90 minutes was a, 
was an endeavor that we had to lose a lot of brilliant stuff. Um, what did you have to lose? What did you have to... Oh, so much. The list is little chunks here and there, you know, but um, st- stuff that would have been lovely to keep. But that's always been the case. You know, we've we've had cuts of it in an hour 45 before. It's the first time we've broken the two-hour mark on a cut. The prosaic answer is, Chris, that, um, you know, we didn't, you know, we didn't have more time to shoot. It's, you know, maybe half one day more. Um, we have a schedule and deadlines that we have to hit when we're, when we're hitting the air so quickly. Um, so I, it meant that I just had to shoot really fast. Um, yeah. and, uh, and then of course, so my antenna is up because, you know, there's fast and then there's shoddy. And, uh, so I have to make sure that I'm as prepped as I can be to, to make every second count really to keep the quality of the coverage up so that we can really still have the time to work the scenes. And uh, we did that because the crew were so damn good. But I don't think, okay, this is the big episode. We're going to make it, you know, it's going to be super cinematic and filmic. Uh, I, uh, I hope that my approach with every episode is to is to find scope where it's appropriate, to find intimacy where it's appropriate, um, and to dig into those things with a with as clear an eye as possible. There's, uh, and I, I think I said before, particularly about episode three in Logan's death, um, that I, a, a big part of my job is to be cruel and voyeuristic. Um, and when these characters are at their most vulnerable and when they're in their most pain, that's where I have to get the camera in their faces even more. It's a, it's a, a strange, I, I like to think I'm a vaguely nice human being, but uh, <laughs> I spend a lot of my time on, on succession being as cruel as I possibly can be and, uh, and sticking a camera in people's faces at their, at their, at their weakest moment, mm. albeit in the, you know, the metaverse of, of the succession characters. You got to be cruel to be kind sometimes. It's kind to the <laughs> audience because we love to see it. Uh, I do. I really loved in terms of sort of thinking about the pacing or, or sort of the arc of the whole season. In the final three episodes, we sort of have the Roy's like the Roy's in the political sphere and sort of the outside world, how their actions affect the outside world. Then we have mm-hmm. in episode nine, we have um, grief and then processing grief and then dealing with the reckoning of their past. And then in episode ten, we sort of have the Roy's coming back together and sort of reverting back to what I imagine their childhood dynamics were and coming back to sort of their most childish um, (laughs) versions of themselves. Were there any discussions about sort of, um, I guess, the backstory of their backstory as children or sort of coming back to sort of a childish place? We see them, you know, being fun kids in Barbados and then being sort of mean kids brawling in the boardroom, which we'll get to. Um, Was that at all a theme or sort of a consideration? It's really just the 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 lifespan of the characters we've evolved over six years together. So that has evolved, obviously led by Jesse's writing. But beyond that, on top of the writing, there's this other odd and rather lovely thing that happens in that life starts to imitate art somewhat. Um, mm. And the, the, the dynamic between all of us, and particularly the cast, they tend to on some level start to mimic the dynamics of the characters and, mm. and it all starts to become a, a big tangle in the best hopefully most interesting way and therefore the dynamics between the siblings they evolve their own life based on the blueprint of the writing 
and then the writing reacts to that and augments it. It's a lovely kind of symbiotic relationship between cast and writer. Mm. So it's not that we get to, you know, meal fit for a king or, or horse play in the water between them and think, oh, how do these characters relate to one each other, to one another in this situation? We yeah. already know because the great thing about ongoing television is you're, you know, you're essentially doing the PhD of each character. So we all know, we understand what the dynamic and we're so invested in it that we just we can all instinctively feel where the truth of the moment is. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean we can nail it every time, but we know what we're looking for and what we're searching for. I got to know, was there a particular scene in this episode that was sort of like the most difficult to shoot, either the emotional weight of it or just technically really tricky because you only had, you know, a certain amount of time or mm. something like that? The, the two scenes that I think were the trickiest, oh, three, uh, number one, just on a technical level, the scenes in the water... So, we were thinking of murdering you. Well, don't tell him. But, uh, you know, it's too much prep. Too much murder, admin. No stomach for the admin. So, we anoint you. They're tricky just because you're on water. How Spielberg made Jaws, I have no idea. Um, yeah. It's technically tricky, uh, particularly at night. Mm. Um, so that was tricky. The scene in the boardroom, the boardroom denouement between the three siblings. I don't even believe you. I don't believe you. I don't. I don't think that you would be good at this. For fuck's sake, Shiv. I mean, for fuck's sake. What the fuck is going on? It, it's, it's six to six, okay. and we don't have Shiv's vote. This doesn't make, like, logic. Where's the logic? I just don't think you'd be good at it. It was hard just because it was probably the most important scene of the entire series. Um, and therefore, that's terrifying, you know, um, and so emotionally fraught that it's really hard for the actors to go there and it's hard to wake up in the morning and think, this is what we're going to do explore today there's a dread that goes with that and a fear but also but coming home from work after those days a sense of almost elation to to when when one has a feeling that we've captured the essence and the intention of the writing and the intensity of it and done it justice hopefully uh, and in terms of hard plus important it would have to be the very last vignette with with uh, with jeremy's character and scott with with Colin and Kendall down at uh, Bowling Green, down at the tip of Manhattan in sub-zero temperatures <sighs> with a wind chill that was minus something Fahrenheit. Um, absolutely frigid and uh, and initially not feeling it. None of us, Jeremy feeling nothing but cold. Um, uh, 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 me and Jesse trying to dance our way and find our way towards getting something greater than just to reveal that Colin is ghosting him now like some kind of banquo. Um, but and gradually working the problem, the three of us and, uh, and with the rest of the team uh, and coming up with something through a 10-minute take down at the water's edge, just running a whole thousand-foot roll of film with Jeremy completely lost mm. in the moment of the and, and, the, and the tragedy and, and, and us dancing in our, our familiar ballet around him to get those moments to edit that sequence together and walking away from that feeling like we had a scene that was worthy of the end of the series was, uh, 
that was a huge challenge and a massive relief as well. I heard that it was the coldest day of the year. And I love, I mean, mm. water imagery is so important to the show and so important to Kendall's character specifically. Jeremy has said that he did a take where he sort of ran over the railing. So like in terms of, mm-hmm. uh, can you talk about sort of like ending with the water and then also that take? Yeah, it was all part of the same take, actually. We oh. just kept rolling once, um, you know, when he started to climb the railing, um, uh, Scott, Nicholson, who plays Colin, was the closest to him. So he grabbed Jeremy and other people moved in once it became apparent that the situation was not going to get any more dangerous Mm -hmm. um, because obviously safety trumps all. As soon as he was back over the fence and nobody was in danger, the camera was still running. So we just carried on. Jeremy was still in the moment. Scott was okay. Everybody was okay. So we just continued going and actually some beautiful moments came out of that um so it was just an impulse that jeremy went with at that time um and there was a lot of debate in the edit as to whether actually it should be part of the cut because it was very strong uh jesse and i both felt that actually a more kind of purgatory place for the character was ultimately better and just putting him in that bench stuck between those two cold places of the cold ocean and the cold future was actually ultimately a, a perhaps a more powerful way to leave the character Oh, I love that purgatory place. We're so left with that, that sort of ambivalence and that am- ambiguity. It's, we, we don't know. And it's, oh, it's mm-hmm. really wonderful. I, I do want to um, sort of zoom in, as you said, the boardroom scene was potentially the most important scene of the series. And it did feel like every episode, every minute that we'd watched Succession had been leading up to this big fight. I'm the eldest boy! <laughs> I am the eldest boy! And, you know, it, this, it mattered to him. He wanted this to go on. Well, I mean, she's the bloodline, though. What? I'm the, I'm the bloodline? We're all the fucking No, bloodline. I just mean if you're going to play that card, Dad's view was yours weren't real. What the fuck did you just say? Well, just not real. Real. Wrong. Well, that's just what Dad said. I'm just saying what Dad said. Well, don't say it, you fucking cuck. They are a pair of randos. One is a buy-in. The other is half robber, half some filing cabinet guy, right? <laughs> And one of the things that I loved about it was that it was this public and private moment. And that's been such a big part of the series with um, uh, Connor's wedding and Logan's death. And, you know, these kids, they're fighting in front in this board, in this board room with these glass walls. And we're watching them fight, but we're also with them, but we're also watching them. So can you talk about how you shot that, especially like when we saw them screaming from beyond the, mm. their, their glass wall, their box, their... Yeah, the the glass wall, the greenhouse uh, the, uh, effect was, you know, on some level, you know, symbolic. Obviously, the, the characters being trapped, but there was also the, we used it as a device for the whole, the new more really to be as humiliating and public for those poor characters as possible. There's a level of, again, it's, there's a level of sadism there, isn't there, in the writing and the staging um, to make it as painful for those characters and, and totally humiliating as we possibly can. Uh, so that was part of the the reason for that staging. And really to give them no way back, there had to be a finality mm. to it beyond just the outcome of the vote. There had to be a, an emotional finality to it as well, which, you know, we've had some pretty fraught scenes between those characters over the years. So to go beyond that to a place of, where there's no coming back was um, without going melodramatic or, or just too screamy um, or <laughs> violent was, uh, is, you know, you're walking a tightrope there to still keep it emotionally true and still be devastating, you know, suitably devastating. And, and I hope to the combination of that staging, that beautiful writing and, and that, those incredible actors that we, that we hopefully did it justice. 
Yeah, I mean, it really was, I mean, it was so heart-wrenching, but you're right, it never sort of um, poured into the melodramatic. It was Shakespearean sort of in scope. I love that word. In in a way that Logan's death was anti-Shakespearean, which I know mm. you said before, this sort of felt Shakespearean with them fighting. And the literal fight, how do you sort of technically make that fight happen with Kendall and Roman? Because it does get what physical. Let go of him. Did you say? Uh, Wait. Uh, Stop. Did you say? You have shit, no kids. Don't, don't do this. Okay, shit, hold don't on, do hold this. On a Fuck off me. Piece of shit. Get off me. Jesus Christ. Oh. Are you fucking kidding me? Sarah Snook is, gets Shiv gets involved a little bit. How did you sort of block that? Or did, is that just sort of organic and you hope everything works out? Normally, I'd, it would be blocking through stealth. It, it, as, as I mentioned about in the kitchen, for instance, there, I, yeah, I tend to ask the characters to go into a particular room and then arrange things and arrange the camera's position so that I know they will fall into a specific position. In this case, there was um, a slight break from that because Sarah was very heavily pregnant um, Mm -hmm. and therefore there was obviously the concern that she was physically safe. And so unusually for us, we did talk about parameters um, uh, and safety parameters, which of course everybody embraced to make sure that Sarah in the whole, because I know, know how deep into it all three of them will go, but we had to make sure that Sarah was safe. Um, so once we'd achieved that with, okay, so Sarah will stay here and uh, the physical fight will not take place in this zone, so Sarah had a safe zone to be in. Beyond that, again, I just know that the actors will find their way to the right place for that fight, and sure enough, they did. Um, so that uh, that just happens organically just because of our relationship. And we see, sort of leading up to that scene, we see Roman's stitches, his wounds open, and Kendall seems mm-hmm. to be responsible for that. Mm-hmm. Was that sort of, I mean, in the writing in terms of Kendall opening up Roman's wounds and um, Roman sort of, you know, letting out that anger because of that? Or, or... Yes, it's a very complex scene that the, the hug that is... And it is one that's difficult to talk about because it's so nuanced. And I think a, a certain level of kind of personal interpretation of the dynamic of the scene is entirely appropriate. Mm. It's not black and white. And, uh, I, and my view of it, I think, is quite personal. And, and of course, Jesse, who wrote it, has, has a specific view of it, which, again, we never really spoke about. Levels of ambiguity is, I think, reflects truth, emotional truth, particularly. Oh, fuck. For me, um, ultimately, I think what Kendall is giving is a gift that Roman is so trapped in the shame of not fulfilling what he thinks is his destiny. Mm. Um, And and Kendall gives him the out from that. He he fucks up his head again by opening up those stitches. Um, Roman has an out. Roman can say, oh, my face is too bloody to to go and be the face of, you know, the the new regime. So, So there's an element of a gift from Kendall, of course, it's ultimately a totally self-serving and, and actually brutal gift. But mm. um, but it's also, yeah, it is also a gift. It is also a gift. I, uh, I, I love that interpretation. And I, speaking of interpretation, I've seen a lot of different uh, takes on Shiv and her decision in the finale. Some people saying that it was pre-planned with Tom. Others, I think myself, I what I saw was her sort of in the moment m- making a, decision based off of Kendall's reaction, uh, specifically his lie that he, you know, was not involved in the vehicular manslaughter. Is there a specific way that you interpreted it? Was there something that you were trying to catch with Siobhan's arc in that moment? 
Yeah, again, it's really, I, I hope, quite complex and, and not necessarily one specific beat. And I love that there are different, it, it's always been a strength of the show. I hope that there, that so many actions are open to interpretation. It's, uh, it, yeah, it, it, it's a Rashomon effect, isn't it? Of just <laughs> people see and remember things differently. And so to find an absolute truth is almost impossible in any situation in reality. Um, so I can only really tell you what mine is really, I think that when Shiv is a quick study, she made a very quick and smart pivot off the betrayal of Matson um, when they're in Barbados to realign and, uh, and to salvage a situation, to rejoin her siblings in a way to sway the vote and to get back at Matson, obviously. Um, having made that pivot uh, and embraced that pivot and almost with a giddiness of actually that is complex in itself and would take the rest of this discussion just to go into that moment uh <laughs> yeah. but uh beyond that but it but it was a very impetuous shift and seismic shift um so i never felt that it solidified into anything concrete mm. uh, it was always tenuous it was always going to be how could it not be yeah. um so that as soon as the reality of that ticking clock came down to actually putting our hand in the air one way or the other then the sheer reality of that started to erode her in my opinion you will see that when we're in Logan's office and she's watching the dynamic between Stewie and Kendall. I like weird sex. I like bad drugs. I'm a very complicated individual. Bullshit. Bullshit. You like pancakes and waffles and you kiss guys on Molly. You're not the heart of darkness. You're a, you're a grilled cheese with a suck dick. Let us clean you up. How the cronyism of that, how she might be sidelined in that future dynamic, uh, uh, her emotional reaction to Kendall putting his feet up on their father's desk, um, uh, uh, the, the look on her face as she's marching down the hallway toward the boardroom. On the first viewing, you might see it as steely determination. Uh, the second viewing, perhaps you might see it as actually doubts creeping into her resolve uh, and then uh, of course we threaded in that through the beginning of the meeting with Kendall so overconfident apparently uh pouring water for everybody uh, and just seeing her uh, just start to unravel 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 until of course she cannot and that with the terrible inevitability of any tragedy she mm. cannot raise her hand to support her brother it's impossible for her it feels like you know each Roy child loses in a really sort of personal, in the most devastating way possible. Um, does anyone, save maybe Tom, not lose by the end of the series? Does anyone, did, uh, does anyone end with something that even is a little bit looks like a win? If you, there are so many lenses to look at through on that. You, okay, so maybe Kendall, maybe, maybe Kendall goes and starts an eco farm somewhere, you know, starts another business <laughs> yeah. and uh, moves to the West Coast and um, starts a new life, finds happiness. Maybe Shiv becomes Lady Macbeth and manipulates Tom and, you know, and eventually kind of is the real pulling the strings behind the curtain. Maybe this was basically a two-year fever dream for Roman um, and actually mm. just ended up back in the bar where he started two years ago and nothing has changed for him mm. at all. And they just carry on making, you know, bad taste jokes uh, <laughs> and drinking too much. Um, so there's, there's so many, there's so many different ways to view it. Yeah. But in the finale, it's like they are broken forever. The, the three of them, it's, it's, it felt like that was, that was the end of the three siblings in a way. I think they were, broken forever from the moment we laid eyes on them personally and they will continue to be yeah 
Wow. Oh, gosh, Mark. Thank you so much. This is so such a, a fantastic conversation and so enlightening in terms of the series finale. And really, honestly, just incredible work throughout. But specifically, sticking the landing, it's not easy to do with a series as big as Succession. Thanks so much, Chris. I'm, 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 yeah, I'm, glad, you, I'm glad you liked it. I really am. It's a huge relief that people seem to like it. Thank you. <laughs> Well, that does it for this episode of Still Watching and Still Watching Succession forever. We're done. <laughs> no more Succession. Uh, but we have some fun things coming up. Um, next, we're going to be diving into our top five episodes of a little series that no one's really ever heard yeah, of. Yeah, it's sort of like under, under yeah, the radar. It's called Sex and the uh, in Sex the City. Sex in the Village? Is it, city, is it, yes. yeah, Sex in the City. Sex, no, <laughs> Sex in the City. We're doing that. Uh, and we're doing that, Chris, because we're preparing for the return of season two of And Just Like That. The Jay Diaz's pilot. Carrie Bradshaw <laughs> universe <laughs> continuation. <laughs> Absolutely. So if you listening have any thoughts on your top five episodes of Sex and the City, let us know. Um, send us any, you know, ideas or questions about Sex and the City or And Just Like That uh, or anything else to stillwatchingpod at gmail.com or you can find me on Twitter at Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. And you can find me and my Louis Vuittons on Twitter at Christress, C-H-R-I-S-T-R-E-S-S. This has been Still Watching from Vanity Fair. Our producer is Emily Elias, and we had production help from Peyton Hayes. We had technical assistance from Bob Mallory. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer, and our theme music is by Alexis Quadrado. See you soon. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.